Good morning. Please stand for the reading of the word. Acts 16, 10 to 40. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed in Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guest. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servant of the most high God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of, God, the, word of the Lord with them and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before him, them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Paul, Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. 
When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Glad you're here in church today. My name's Jason. I'm the pastor. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we're really glad you're here today. You're here on a really important day for our church. We'll get to that in a little bit, but we're just glad all of you are here. And uh, thanks to Sherry for reading that. That was, I think, the longest passage that we've ever had read up here. But we read it all for a reason, and we'll get to it. Throughout the fall, we have... We've really spent the last almost three months, we've taken some breaks along the way, but we've spent the last three months reading and studying and learning from the story of the first Christians. And when I say first Christians, I actually mean the first human beings to ever be recognized as Christians. There were 120 of them at the first church service after Jesus was resurrected, the first gathering together. And what happened with those 120, whether you are a Christian or not, what happened with those 120 is remarkable and changed history. Those 120 became a few thousand, became a few hundred thousand, became a few million, to where today there are 2.5 billion Christians on the planet, growing by about 45 million a year. Thousands of years later, this faith, this belief, these people, this um, this, this gospel message has not only grown out of this little area where it started, but it has transformed and taken over the world. And so the question that we've been trying to figure out over these last several months, because we're Christians, we belong to that number. The question that we've been trying to figure out is if, and I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but if we would say, as we read their stories my life doesn't necessarily reflect their life. I'm not experiencing what they experienced. I'm not feeling necessarily the way they felt. Well, then the question we've been trying to ask is, what did they believe that maybe we don't believe? What did they do that maybe we aren't doing? What did they have that maybe we don't have? That's what we've been trying to do with all of these stories. And so for the first maybe two months, all of our stories took place in one city. It's a city called Jerusalem, and all of the people who were becoming Christians, while there were differences there, or while there were similarities, um, I'm sorry, while there were differences, there were a lot of similarities. But then Christianity began to spread outside of that city, and the people who were becoming Christians um, were not the same as all of the people who lived in Jerusalem. They came from different backgrounds, different economic statuses, and uh, you know, diff different uh, uh, worldviews. And so, the last few stories that we've read, and we're going to have one more next week as we finish up the series, have allowed us to examine Christianity and to see if it passes a very important test. And and here. Here's the test. Here was the test for them. Here's the test for us. Now that everyone who was becoming a Christian wasn't from the same place and didn't have the same cultural traditions and the same worldview, would Christianity work? Would it work? 
In other words, can Christianity translate to different people from different places with different backgrounds and different economic status? Is it really good news for everyone or is it just good news for some people? This is the test that was happening for these first Christians. It is still the test for you and I today. And so we've only got this week and one more week, but this week and next week, we're going to see the test. And let me just remind you one more time of the test. Here's the test. Is Christianity really good news for everyone or just some people? Does it work anywhere? Does the message that I stand up here every week and tell you that you get credit for the life of Jesus because he took credit for your life, does that work in a village in Africa and in Dubai and in downtown San Francisco and Birmingham, Alabama? Does it work there? Does it work for Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Does it work, you know, for prostitutes and soccer moms? Does it work for everybody everywhere or is it only effective for, for, for some people? And the answer, by the way, in case you have to leave early is yes. I don't wanna leave you in suspense. It's yes. And our story today gives us a beautiful example of this because in our story, we have three very different people, very different from each other, and each of their lives are changed by the Christian message. They're, they're each changed by the gospel. Now, this week is extra special because uh, it's our open hands offering day. And we're, we're making our commitments and our pledges over and above to be able to expand our building and expand our reach in the city. And I have to be honest with you and tell you that I didn't plan it this way because I'm not that smart, but it just so happens that our story gives us the perfect opportunity to understand what we're trying to do today, why we're doing this, to understand the kind of church we wanna be and to understand why all of this matters. Why would we make commitments? Why would we give over and above? Why does it matter about our building? Why does it matter about our reach? And so we get to kill two birds with one stone today, which as I typed that, I wasn't sure if that's still politically correct. I'm not sure if we're supposed to be killing birds, but um, we do get to learn from the first Christians. That's one thing that we are continuing to do, but we also get to better understand what God has called us to here at Hope City Church. And I hope that by the time that we're done, you will have a better understanding of why we are the way we are and why we do the things the way that we do, and why we've done them this way for the last 15 years. Because there is a method to our madness. And if you are here and you like it for whatever reason, or you're here and God has changed your life, ultimately that is because of the Holy Spirit. But after that, it's because we are passionate about a few things. And we find those things in this story. So let's see if we can do that, all right? I love our story today because it shows how the Christian message isn't just one size fits all. It's versatile. And here's what I mean. The gospel message becomes what it needs to become to meet your need. Did you notice the people in the story, Lydia, the girl, the jailer? There were three. It's why we read all the verses because there's three people in the story. There's Lydia, there's the, the slave girl, and there's the jailer. And they, they all become Christians 
but in three completely different ways. Lydia, who was first, she was convinced through teaching. She was at a a Bible study of sorts, and and a person showed up and began to explain the Christian message to her, and she was convinced through information and facts. The, the, the slave girl was powerfully delivered. Matter of fact, no one really even taught the doctrine of Christianity to her. She was just powerfully delivered. And then the jailer found God in a crisis. So Lydia was given information. The slave girl was given a powerful deliverance and the jailer was given help in a crisis. And so I know preachers say this all the time, we can't help it, but Acts 16 is actually one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Because in just these 40 verses, we see how versatile and well-rounded and powerful the Christian message, the gospel is, and that it is logical, it is powerful, and it's practical. It's all of those things. That the gospel message, the Christian faith, is logical, it's powerful, and it's practical. And usually what happens as Christians and as churches is you pick one of those and you kind of camp out in one camp. You're either going to be the really information, scholastic, logical church, or you're going to be the real powerful church, or you're going to be the real practical church. But here in Philippi, where this new church is getting started, we see that you don't have to just pick one kind of version of Christianity, that it is logical and it's powerful and it's practical. And if we were to take time to go around the room today and all tell our stories of how we became a Christian, we would all have different stories, uh, you know, for how we received exactly what we needed in order to come to faith. It's logical when it needs to be logical. It's powerful when it needs to be powerful. It's practical when it needs to be practical. But whatever you need, it is that. It's that. And so for some of us, it was a sermon. For others of us, it was a friend who loved you. For some, it was having a family. You wanted to have a family or you had a family. You want to make changes. For others, it was hitting rock bottom. There isn't one strategy to reach people. The Holy Spirit gives you what you need right when you need it. Isn't that what happened to you? Didn't you find this church at just the right time in your life? or meet that friend, or have that problem. And you look back and you say, you know, if it wasn't for that crisis, if it wasn't for that friend, if it wasn't for that church, of course that's how it worked because the Holy Spirit is pursuing you. He is drawing you in. And so I think about different people in our church family. I think about Bob who could no longer be an atheist when he held his newborn baby in his arms, right? Just the logic of atheism broke down for him. And I I think about Angela who showed up after rehab, who just had tried every other substance and and, and couldn't take it anymore. 
needed a new power. I think about Julie who showed up because she couldn't fall asleep at night. She'd tried everything to get a good night's rest and she couldn't find it. And so the stories are endless of how God shows up at just the right time and just the right way to our hearts that cause all of us that are Christians to say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm ready to put my faith in him. So here's what I wanna do for the time that we have left today is I just wanna kind of, as quickly as possible, look at the three people in this story, see if you can't maybe find yourself in one of them. And more importantly, I I, I wanna show you why it's important for us as a church to not create these dumb dichotomies, but instead be a church that is committed to being logical and powerful and practical. Not just one, but all three. Okay, so let's do that. So first, the first person in the story was Lydia. Let's talk about Lydia. What do we know about her? Well, it says that she sold purple cloth, which back at that time was, was, was like the finest of the quality of the, of the material that you could have. It was very time-consuming and expensive to, to, to make the cloth purple. So we know that Lydia, you know, has taste. We know that Uh, She deals with wealthy people. Only wealthy people could afford something like this. And it says that she was a worshiper of God, which is kind of better understood as as she feared God. It wasn't necessarily that she was a Christian. Matter of fact, she was not a Christian when we first meet her. But she, she wasn't like into Roman Stoicism or Epicureanism. She, was a, she understood that there was a God and she feared that God, but she, didn't, she was a religious person, you could say, right? And when we meet her, she's kind of at a Bible study of sorts-ish. And so if we wanted to kind of relate her to our time today, Lydia sounds like someone who owns a boutique store in the East End. She lives in a nice home. She's religious in some way. She doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, but she's a moral person trying her best. So the question is, does the Christian message work for someone like that? To which you would say, well, yeah, I mean, she's already kind of halfway there. She fears God. But wouldn't you be honest and admit, I think most of us would admit, that we struggle to believe that wealthy or successful people would be interested in Jesus? Right? Because most of us, almost all of us find God at the bottom or in a crisis or whatever. And so we struggle to believe that someone who seemingly has everything that we want to have would ever be interested in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, does the Christian message work for someone who has already achieved, you know, business success, social success? She has her own home. Does it work? You know, we have no problem believing that somebody at the bottom would be interested in being saved, but at the top, we don't know. And Lydia is a great reminder that you never know who is searching for God. You never know. I mean, you got somebody at your job, your boss, a neighbor, a relative, and in your mind, they've got it all worked out. They got it all together. You have no idea who's searching for God. You'll guess wrong every time, right? And so how does God get a hold of Lydia's heart? Well, it says that Paul sat down and began to speak to them. And when Paul began to speak to them, God opened her heart. It was a message. It was information. It was facts. 
So what would Paul have been saying? Well, we don't know exactly what he said, but we can make a good guess because of what he said everywhere else he went. He was telling her about the person of Jesus. She was religious and she probably knew about the God of the Old Testament, but Paul was explaining to her that salvation is now available through grace. It's not something that you earn through moral living. It's not something that uh, happens because you have uh, 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 made enough animal sacrifices, but that it is now available through grace. And her heart was, it made sense to her. Something happened in her heart. So it was a sermon, it was information, it was facts. And so Paul was, you know, probably giving proof that Jesus was who he said he was. And, 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 and the way that they did it is probably a little differently than we do it, but he was probably giving her the names of actual people, of witnesses who were alive and who walked with him. It's one of the things that I love about these stories that we're reading about these first Christians. It is it's not just some theoretical thing. She's called Lydia. He's called Ananias. That you could go to the room, if you were alive in this time, you could go to an address, to an upper room where the Holy Spirit fell. You could touch the walls and the floor. And so Paul is saying to Lydia and to these ladies, let me tell you about Jesus. Don't just take my word for it. I can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can piece together a logical case that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. And so obviously this requires the Holy Spirit to open her heart to believe. It can't just be information, but this is a very important point that I want to make that will really matter to some of you in the room that you do not have to turn off your brain in order to become a Christian. Please hear that. If, if you only hear one thing I say today, some of you, this is really important. I just want you to hear this. You do not have to turn off your brain to become a Christian. And maybe you've met Christians who had no brains, in your opinion. And you asked questions, you, you, you just had questions you couldn't answer and you were searching for truth and you asked a really great question. You took pride in the quality of your question and somebody said back to you, you just gotta have faith. And you just wanna punch them. <laughs> it is true that in order to be a Christian, you have to have faith. But it's not true that in order to be a Christian, you just have to have blind faith. You have to have faith. You'll never have enough information to not have to have faith. But in order to be a Christian doesn't mean that you have to have blind faith. Throughout history, one of the reasons that Christianity has survived when other belief systems have failed is because it's more believable. It stacks up. When you lay Christianity down beside other religions and other belief systems and other moral philosophies and other cultural ideas, century after century after century, people come to the conclusion that of all the things that they could believe, Christianity seems more legit, more believable. It stands up to criticism and skepticism. And hear me, no one has ever been able to disprove it. Did you know that? No one has ever been able to disprove Christianity. 
And so it doesn't mean you can prove all of it. At the end of the day, you're still going to have to decide if you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But it's not blind faith. And so we don't have to be afraid as Christians to engage in debate. You're not weird or strange or stupid because you're a Christian. Because you adhere to biblical teachings or believe that the Bible is a legitimate authority source in your life doesn't mean that somehow you have lost your mind or that you don't get to be a part of society or conversation. And maybe you're here today and you're cynical and you're skeptical. And I hope that you're here today because this, we, we love that you're here. Here's what I would say to you. If you're like, man, I'm not even a Christian yet and I'm not sure yet and I, I've got so many things I just don't understand, here's what I would say to you. Start with Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus was a real person who existed? I hope you do because even non-Christian historians, like it's undeniable fact, even the staunchest, most hostile detractors from Christianity agree that a real man named Jesus of Nazareth existed. So you can start there and you can read what he said and as C.S. Lewis said, by the time you get done reading what he said, you're either going to think he is the son of God or you're going to think he is a psychopath. But you'll get to decide. And sadly, many people looking for an intelligent approach to faith have had bad experiences in church. But hear me, at Hope City, we're, we, can, we, we try, not perfectly, but we try to be a safe place for doubts and questions. One of my favorite uh, quotes, it's going to be on the screen, I'll read it to you, but I read it in um, the biography of, uh, of Timothy Keller, who is one of my heroes, he's passed on now, but I love this, Keller, he actually heard it from a professor in Bible college, but uh, Keller says, the resurrection of Jesus is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying, that sounds like something Keller would say. The resurrection of Jesus is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. I've come to see over the years that those are the two tests of any valid worldview, philosophy, or religion. It has to be both rational, coherent, and it has to be true. It has to meet my needs and it has to connect with my experience. So this is the first person in the story, Lydia. And she shows us that the Christian faith, the Christian message is logical. It's logical. But it's not just information for our heads. It's also powerful. Like Keller said, it has to connect with our experience. And so in this one chapter of these stories of the first Christians, after Lydia, who is maybe wealthy and has taste and is upper class, the Bible tells us about this slave girl. What do we know about her? Well, she's young, probably 14 to 16 years old. She is possessed by some evil spirit, we don't know exactly, that allows her to tell the future. And here's what's kind of crazy, is she's obviously good at it because she makes money for her owners. So if we were equating this to today, we would say that this is a young girl who somehow maybe got involved in sex trafficking, Maybe she lives on the street, she's addicted. And the question is, does the Christian message work for her? Maybe it, it works for Lydia, because logically it adds up. But does somebody in this state, are they ready to hear a logical presentation of Jesus Christ? Does it work for, for her? 
Well, what we know for sure is that Lydia doesn't need um, books on the gospel. She doesn't really need a podcast. Uh, uh, the, The girl, not Lydia, the girl needs a powerful, miraculous experience with God. She needs deliverance, and that's what happens. She doesn't weigh the pros and cons. Matter of fact, she doesn't even totally ask for it. She she annoys Paul so much that he just turns around and gives her deliverance. She is miraculously, instantaneously set free from her bondage. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that Christianity isn't just logical, but it's also powerful. That the gospel message has power. It has the power to miraculously, instantaneously change your life forever in a moment. Here's the challenge. Logical people are uncomfortable with miracles and mystical people are bored by logic. So it's really hard to be in the same church together. Because logical people don't want anything to happen they can't explain, and mystical people don't want to be bored with the information. But it's important to understand that a skeptic coming to faith through a well-crafted argument is no less a miracle than an addict being set free. But this also means that if we want to be a church that experiences power and people set free, we have to be okay with welcoming people who need to be set free. Jim Cimbala in his, his book, uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, we have talked about it a little bit. I know several of you have been reading it. He tells a story about a, a guy named Ricardo uh, in New York City who was a male prostitute. And uh, their church was getting together for prayer meetings and praying for the area of town in Brooklyn, the salt mines where the male prostitution was so heavy. And then some members of their church started going and passing out blankets. And one day before the service, somebody knocks on Pastor Jim's door and says, hey, good news. We, we, got, we took some buses out to the salt mines and we've got 27 male prostitutes in church with us today. And Simbala said in his book that, you know, like you pray and want God to show up, but you're thinking, oh my gosh. <laughs> he said they stunk, they hadn't showered. They're high. One guy had a machete knife under his rain jacket because he didn't know what was going to happen. And Simbala says that he was blown away by the way that his church loved and welcomed these people. And about a month later, Ricardo, whose street name was Sarah, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And that it was such a genuine transformation that his life was was changed. It didn't happen in an instant, but it was changed. And that over the next several years, Ricardo was transformed by Jesus Christ. This ministry began to grow. And the point that Simbala was trying to make was that If you're going to pray for God to send the most broken and the most hurting, you've got to be okay when they show up. And some of you are here today and you showed up broken and hurting and questioning. and You don't need me to stand up here and logically explain to you how Josephus convinces us that Jesus, Jesus' hometown is valid. 
You just need a touch from God. A touch from God. So I want everybody to hear me. We're not going to pick one side or the other. I believe that this can be a place that is logical and powerful. But there's one more person in the story, and we actually get more details about him than any of the other two. And, and, and we get one more way that the Christian message works. The last guy is the jailer. What do we know about him? Well, it doesn't tell us in the story, but if we know anything about the Romans, we know that if he's a prison guard, he's ex-military, he's probably retired. Just think Russell Crowe in The Gladiator, but not that awesome because he's working in a jail. But just think, you know, that. He's probably aged out of the military. So he's probably in his 40s or his 50s, real tough guy. He survived battle, so he's still alive. And he treats Paul and Silas awful, awfully. He, he beats them more than they need to be beaten. And it says that they put them in the inner dungeon, the inner cell, and they, and they, and, and they go the extra step of, of shackling them so that they cannot move. This is what this jailer did to Paul and Silas. And, and when God miraculously shows up and sets the prisoners free... And he realizes what has happened. He's so ashamed. This is a shame culture. He's so ashamed. He's so embarrassed of his failure and what will happen to him and what will be said about him that on his watch, prisoners escape, that he was ready and willing to end his life because of his failure. And as I was thinking about this jailer's story today, I couldn't help but think about some of the information I've been reading recently from Princeton economics, uh, economic, economist Ann Case and Angus Deaton who have started researching what's happening to men in our society. And Case and Deaton have shown that middle-aged white Americans without a college degree are dying younger than their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, especially men, and the top three leading causes of death in this group are drug overdoses, alcohol-related liver disease, and suicide. And Case and Deaton have coined this phenomenon, deaths of despair. That for the first time in history, white men are dying before their parents and grandparents from despair. So what caused this jailer to, to stop? What caused him to not take his life? Well, it was when Paul said to him, don't do that. We haven't left. We haven't left. And so the question is, why would that have stopped him? Why, why would that have stopped him? This is such a powerful principle that, for Lydia, it was information, and for, the, and for the girl, it was a powerful delivering, a miracle. But for the jailer, it was the actions and the reactions of the people that he had done wrong. 
The jailer had tortured them more than they needed to be tortured. He had placed them in the inner dungeon. And when they had a chance to escape, they stayed. And he also was sitting there, by the way, when it was midnight and they were chained up and they were singing praises to God. And I got to be honest with you, all my life, and this is not bad, it's just a recognition on my part. I have heard this, mess, this, this particular part of Acts preached, let's be safe and go low, a hundred times. I grew up in churches where we would talk about whatever you feel chained to symbolically or figuratively, if you'll just worship, the chains will drop off. That's a powerful message, but that's not the message today. The message today is that because there were a group of people who had been so changed by Christianity, the way that they suffered inspired a middle-aged man in despair to not end his life and receive the gospel message. That there were men who had every right to get back at him or to ruin his reputation. And they were singing in the middle of the night. And when they had the chance to run, they did not run. And they cared about him enough to not want him to end his life. And the jailer said, who are you and what do you have and what do you believe? He saw that their faith made them different than anyone else he had encountered. And it wasn't their intelligence. And it wasn't even the miracle of the prison doors opening. That's not what convinced him. It was the way that they suffered. I want you to think about that. And that night, the jailer and all of his family were saved. He took them home. And they were baptized. And one of the things that we have tried over the last 15 years to do at Hope City Church, and I don't know how you're going to hear this, so I'll just run the risk, but one of the things that we have really tried to do at Hope City Church is to make this a place where middle-aged men want to come. We want everyone to come, women, kids. But if you, are, if you go into most churches in America, you'll find more women than men. And we've always wanted this to be a place where your boyfriends or your husbands or your ex-spouse or your neighbor would want to come. And that causes us to make certain decisions and do things a certain way. And I love all the testimonies and I love the, when people's lives are changed. I love that. But there's something especially powerful to me when 38-year-old or 44-year-old or 61-year-old guy, because you, you can't emotionally manipulate them to become a Christian. And it's got to be real. There has to be something so compelling. That's what happens here. That, that, that Christianity is not just head knowledge, even though it is, and that Christianity is not just powerful heart changing, even though it is. It, it also gets into your hands. It's practical. It works. Your life changes and actually gets better because of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that your conditions at your job get better, but I'm saying that you feel differently about your job. I'm not saying that your kids start listening to you anymore, but you feel differently about your kids. I'm not saying that you make more money, but it changes the way you manage your money. I'm not saying you don't suffer anymore, but it changes the way you suffer because it actually makes a difference in your life. 
And I'm sure, like me, you know a lot of Christians who have had a lot of head knowledge, but it's not very practical. You probably know a lot of Christians who have powerful stories, but you don't enjoy being around them. My mom used to say, and I'm sure you've heard this too, but you know they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And so we see Lydia and we see the girl and we see the jailer and we see that it's logical, this Christian faith. It's logical, it's powerful, and it's practical. And here's what I know. I know that some of you, and this is a small number, but I know that some of you have taken grief from your family because you attend church here. And it's not like the church you grew up in. And we only sing a certain number of songs or the pastor doesn't, you know, sweat profusely when he preaches or... You know, we don't have tons of altar calls, which we do every week, but that's a whole separate thing. But it's, it's, it's to this, it's not enough of that. I know that some of you take grief for that. Some of you came out of another faith system and, 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 and you take grief for that. And here's what I want you to know. We, we don't do it perfectly. We've never done it all the way right. But I'd want you to know that like we try very hard to create a place that's, that's logical and powerful and practical. And I just want to point out one more thing, and then we're going to, I've already gone too long, but um, one more thing I wanted to point out is that here in this story, do you notice the diversity of the people? We have a woman named Lydia who is upper class, we have a, a, a girl who is, who is at the bottom of the lower class and a jailer who's middle class. We've got someone who's Roman. We've got someone who's Greek. We've got men. We've got women. We've got 14 to, to 40 or 50. We've got religious, not interested. And so if, if the Christian message only works for one type, it's not the Christian message. It's not the Christian message. And so the reason we should care is because you know business owners, you know victims, you know tough guys. You're a business owner, you're a victim, you're a tough guy. And what I want you to know is that it works for you and it works for them. And the Holy Spirit has to do it. We can't do it, but we're going to do our best to try to create a place. And hopefully this has happened for you where if you need it to be logical, it's going to be logical. If you need it to be powerful, it's going to be powerful. If you need it to be practical, it's going to be practical. It's going to be practical. And to end, I just wanted to read this short little example because the reality is, is that it's all three of those things. And maybe you start at one, one area more than the other, but here's what I know about your story is that however it met your need, it doesn't take long for it to be all three. And I asked someone in our church that I know that God is transforming their life in a real way if they would just put a few paragraphs down to explain what has happened in their life. And this is what they said. They said, my life before Jesus felt very chaotic and dull at the same time. 
felt like I was just going through the motions and I didn't experience any real joy. I felt like I was never enough for anyone, not good enough for anyone. I had a lot of members of my family pass away young, which led me to feel sorry for myself and feel as if I had been dealt a bad hand from God. I was spending a lot of money on drinking, going out to eat, gambling, being involved in unhealthy relationships, trying to anything to fill the void I felt in my life, and nothing seemed to help. Everything I tried made me feel worse. During COVID, I started listening to sermons online of Pastor Jason. So in December of 2022, I decided to walk into the door of HCC. My life has not been the same since. I'm all in. I've taken the classes, bought the books. A friend of mine said I'm like a sponge. I began to see everything in my life differently. I'm not so negative anymore. I'm more patient with people with different views and opinions. More patient with my children making their choices, whether I agree or not. And now when Satan gets in my head, I talk to Jesus. I read the Bible, reach out to friends from my small group instead of reaching for the destructive vices of the past. I love that. It was some sermons, then it was a powerful experience, and now it's worked its way into, into their life. 